grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Joe Sparrow here. Today we're talking to Karen Ingram. Karen is an adoptee who was born at Crown Street Women's Hospital in Sydney in 1965, where she remained for one month as her adoption was deferred owing to the diagnosis of mild telepathy, which required her legs to be in plaster. She was subsequently placed with her new family in Cardiff, Newcastle, in a foster care arrangement until her adoption was formalised 12 months later. Karen describes herself as a mother, feminist, performer, celebrant and activist who now resides in Melbourne, Australia. She has written a memoir titled Lifting the Lid, a memoir born of adoption and joins us here to talk about both her experience and her book. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Karen. Thanks, Joe, for having me. It's great to be here. Karen, I firstly want to tell you how much I enjoyed your memoir. I read it over two days and I pushed aside many pressing tasks to race through the final third because it was a real nail nail biter and I couldn't wait to find out how it ended. And as fate would have it, you returned my call just minutes after I read the final page. So I was still very caught up in it at the time. There's so many things that I want to ask you about, but I would love to start with you sharing the train station story and how you came to be handed to your adoptive mother. Okay, so it's it's quite a a unique story, I think, from the reaction that it gets from people when I um, tell it or when they read it. So I was, um, I say I was delivered on a train, but sometimes that conjures up ideas that I was actually birthed on a train but um no a nurse from Crown Street Hospital I presume that's where she was from um transported me I possibly in her arms or in a basket I'm not sure but on the train to from Sydney to Newcastle and I arrived at the Broadmeadow station in Newcastle where my mother and godmother um, were the, were meant to be to meet me, but they were running late or, as my mum says, no, the train was early and they <laughs> weren't there. So um, for those people who know about the Newcastle station, it's like a dead-end station and so Broadmeadows sort of two stations out from, from the end of the line. So the nurse had to get off the train and hand me the you know, my mother wasn't there, so she handed me to the um, to the station master with a small bag, and I had a cardboard tag um, tied to my wrist. Wow! It said Baby McGarry, um, escort calling is what the what the tag said, and then the nurse had to get back on the train and go back to Sydney. 
because they were like three hour train rides back in those days between Newcastle and Sydney. So yes, my mum and godmother were there soon after. I'm not sure how long after the train had left and that the station master had been um, in my, you know, I'd been in his care and that's um, who they collected me from was the station master, just like a, a parcel. Well, I was a parcel. <laughs> You can't imagine that happening today. Yeah, my mind boggles and, you know, I've often had thought about the that station master, that, that man who would have taken receipt of the baby, which was me, and mm-hmm. um, that had happened before. Or, But what was going through his mind, even if it was only for a few minutes. Um, but then I started to think about what was the perspective of the nurse mm-hmm. and who was that person and, she had me for three hours on that train ride and what did she make of that? And, um, yeah, so that's why I wrote, I took some creative licence there in my book and wrote from the perspective of the nurse that, yeah. um, that situation. Actually, I was going to ask you about that because I'm a writer as well and um, when I've tried to write about adoption, um, sometimes I've taken a, an interesting you know, I've tried to fill in the gaps, I guess, because for adoptees, there is so many gaps that there's this period of time where we don't know sort of what happened to us. And so when you did write from the perspective of the nurse, and so you call it an imagining, um, was it partly that too? Were you trying to fill in some gaps? Yeah, yeah. it was absolutely like that. I've, yeah, that was a missing month in my life. So I was... Um, adopted exactly one month after I was born or I was taken to my new family one month later and so I don't know what happened you know I hoped that um, I was being cuddled by nurses or um, caregivers in the hospital I think about that time on the train that um, me baby me had with that nurse and and hoped that she was cuddling me and whispering things to me and, um, you know, wishing me the best of my life and what that must be like, you know, if that was me handing over a baby, yeah. you know, I'd, you just want to wish them well. And, yeah, so I guess that's what I had hoped, what what I imagined. I guess it was probably my, my best scenario of... Um, of the case, but um, you know, and I'll never know. No. Can I? Can you tell us about um, your younger years and your family and how you came to know that you were adopted? Well, I feel like I always knew I was adopted, so so I don't probably remember not knowing. But I was about three years old when I do remember the time where I was on a swing um, in a park in Newcastle, and Mum was pushing me on the on the swing and she'd always had always remembered her telling me you're special we chose to have you um you know that and I understand that that's also a fairly common script for adoptive parents in many cases to give to their children um but I just thought yes I'm special you know yes I'm special how great am I I'm so special (laughs) but then she just told me the fact that um you know we waited a long time for you to come um you know you had another mum and she couldn't keep you and she gave you away so you could have a better life so it was along those lines that she was telling three-year-old me 
you know, I had another mummy that she couldn't look after me. But my mum and dad, they really, really wanted me and they waited a long time. So that was a quite a affirming, I guess, you know, story as part of my, my story emerged. And that was, I was really grateful to my mum for putting it to me like that especially from a really young age. Mm. So then I started to find out, well, what about my brothers and do they, who's mummy, who's their mummy? And so found out that, yes, my mum and dad had two boys, but then my mum went on to have many miscarriages and as well as um, a baby, another baby boy who died soon after his birth. So she had, they had been on a waiting list for seven years Wow, it's a long time back then. Yeah, to adopt a baby girl. They wanted a baby girl. So my mum was adamant she wanted a a daughter. So I guess seven years of that expectation Mm. and and yearning for a baby girl, you know, that that went into, I guess, the way she loved me. Mm. And that probably brought up a whole lot of other issues down the track and whether I met up with met her expectations of what a girl should be. That's, you know, I write about that in the book as well. But I guess the main part of that story, apart from me being told I, you know, I wasn't, she wasn't my real mummy, um, was that I had, you know, she waited for seven years and then out of the blue one day my dad got a phone call at, at his work saying, you know, I think it was on a Thursday and, you know, your baby will be there on Tuesday. And so he, you know, drove home and, you know, went to mum in the kitchen as she was, you know, peeling potatoes ready for dinner. The two boys were in the lounge room and he said, you know, she's coming. We, we're getting our baby on Tuesday. And mum's like, whoa, you know, having not heard anything for seven years. So, um, yeah, not quite the gestation period that, that many mothers <laughs> experience. So, yeah, she went into a bit of a flap Um to trying to get everything organised for the for my, for my arrival the, in four days' time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, but it came, it read to me as though your adoptive mother was the driving force and the searcher in your initial outreaches to your birth mother, Anne. Can you tell me about this? You know, I guess as a young girl growing up, I always knew that I'd want to find my birth mother but um, I knew I wasn't going to do that on my own. I was always very concerned and for my mum and how that would make her feel. So I was very, very concerned. You know, I didn't want to upset my mum. So that was, I guess, a key driver. But I also knew that while I was waiting to be fully ready to find my birth mother, that I would have my daydreams to um, and my imaginings to to, you know, satisfy my curiosity in the meantime. So I think, you know, I was quite happy with those those daydreams but also very nervous and wary about actually making that, um, you know, going to my mum and saying I want to find my birth mother. Mm. So I think that's what kept me there, you know. So I just, you know, I have a great imagination and I imagined, you know, could that be her? Could that be her? You know, I'd go into a shop or because I was born in Sydney, whenever I went to Sydney, it's like, oh, could, you know, have I just walked past her? Is she in a shop that I went to? Or, you know, so I guess they were the, that's what kept me going all that 
all those years. So then, you know, into my mid to late 20s, um, you know, I'd moved to Melbourne and was in a loving relationship with my now husband. And one day mum and I were in the city and, yeah, mum just came out with it, like just absolute, like not prompted by me or anything. And she just said, Are you, do you want to find your birth mother? And I just, I don't know, it was just like my heart exploded, just, you know, just all this light that came, came into me and I, and I was like, yes, like if you're going to mention it and I'm not mentioning it to you, yes, then I'm absolutely ready. And I just knew that I was absolutely ready because I knew she was ready. So that yeah. kind of gave me the impetus to move forward. And I yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you know, often we're triggered by different things as adoptees, you know, you hear someone's story. And I was saying to you earlier that I was very much, you know, I needed the control of things. And when my adoptive mother sort of stepped in and started moving a search along it, for me, it was, um, I didn't tell her to stop because I felt like I'd hurt her feelings, but at the same time, I was really angry about it at the time. Um, And it, it didn't read to me like you were at the time. And I'm wondering over the years, whether you've looked back at that and you're still happy with how that unfolded. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine, like I don't know what would have, how it would have happened any other way. Um, yeah. I mean, it seems like now, I mean, if she was ready to, if my mum was ready to help me or give permission or whatever to encourage me to take those steps then, like I guess if had I gone to her and said I really want to find my birth mother, mm. well, unbeknownst to me, she'd be ready. She'd go, yep, let's do this or yeah what do you need or, or whatever so yeah. that was I guess setting the the setting in motion the steps I needed to take to actually find her yeah but then I guess the day that it happened um was another great time where my mum showed me more strength than I knew she had in her so I probably underestimated my underestimated my mum for many, many years. Mm. And, yeah, she really showed me her courage and determination and even creativity and support when the day came that I found I found my birth mother. And I don't know if you want to, you know, if, if I want, you want me to tell. Yeah, if you're comfortable. About that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I'm really interested too in like, the day you had your first conversation with your birth mother because that unrolled interestingly too. Well, yeah, so the first, it was actually the 8th of March, which was my adoptive day, Um, Mm. the day that I, so I was born on the 8th of February. I arrived in Newcastle into my new family on the 8th of March. So that was always a special day that mum would always say, make something about it, something Mm. small and private um, between us. It would always be remarked upon. And so on the 8th of March, um, 1994, um, I, yeah, I got a phone call out of the blue. Um, So I I filled out some forms previously about, you know, how do I find my birth mother? And I got a phone call out of the blue from the Post-Adoptive Resource Centre in Sydney. 
and it was somebody who had their, she asked if I was who I who I am and she said um, I have a letter here from your birth mother that she wrote to you when you were 21 and we received it and we've had it on file and would you like me to read it to you so I just I mean that was just a a bolt to the heart and I just said yes and I just remember standing in the hallway of my home uh you know stuck on the phone because phones were plugged into walls back then and (laughs) and, and I was just just sort of nervously standing in the hall and um listening to my birth mother's words for the first time and Mm. one of the first things that she wrote in the letter was well you know what happened to my baby did she die so I guess Mm. the letter wasn't to me because she didn't even know if the baby she gave birth to um, had lived or died, which I yeah. just found so heartbreaking that this woman, 21 years after she'd given birth, was still, you know, wanted, wasn't even given the dignity or respect to even know if her baby lived or died. Mm. All she knew was that the d- adoption was deferred due to ill health. Yeah. So that was awful to hear that, but also, you know, just all the layers started building on top of each other it wasn't going to be a you know I don't think any of our stories are straightforward um, while probably the essence of them are very similar but everybody you know the way it unfolds is all very different so I guess after you know hearing that letter and then I rang my mum going guess what you know this letter and and mum's like well what can I do what you know what tell me what you'd like me to do and I said well you know I'd search for a phone number um through directory assistance uh, you know sometime some many months before that I was trying to find my grandmother's you know a name that matched my grandmother because I figured you know anyway I figured that my birth mother would have had a married name by then which I wouldn't know so I so I went you know the generation ahead and um so I had a phone number um, that I'd done nothing with that sort of matched my grandmother's name. So mum said, give me the number. I'll ring it now. And so I was like, really? And she, anyway, she said, yep, give it to me. I'll do it. And I, I was just so amazed that nothing about my mum had ever given me any inkling that she would be this type of, <laughs> she'd spring <laughs> into action like this. So, yeah, I let her, I let her do it. And um and then that was a really long sort of half hour wait or so and she rang I back imagine. and that was I spoke to, I just spoke to your nana and anyway it's like what and but without giving anything away she pretended to be a school friend of um of Anne's so yeah. Anne's my birth mother and then um so yeah she just said to um, nana um I went to school with Anne you know I'd love to get in touch with her so yeah, I didn't know mum was capable of that either. <laughs> Being so creative and um, and a little bit, yeah, cheeky. And so, yes, so then mum said, okay, I have Anne's number. I'm going to ring her now. And then it's like, oh, whoa. Like, so, yeah, it was a real soap opera moment for me, you know, gazing out the window and 
I was smoking back then and, uh, you know, <laughs> like I would not, you know, it was unusual that I would smoke, you know, in the lounge room in the middle of the day. But anyway, I did. Yeah, that's so why I was very soap, soap opera for me, <laughs> gazing out the window and looking at the phone and looking out the window and then making a cup of tea and then having another cigarette. Um, and, yeah, so that was a couple of hours passed I think and then that's when mum rang me back and said I've found Anne and and I was just really 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 glad that they got to speak first because and I just it just it just made sense I just felt like as two women who who had so much in common but not much in common at the same time that they could make that connection themselves. So I think that really helped mum and really helped me. And it was a good bridge, I guess, mm-hmm. between me and Anne. And I think Anne really appreciated that as well. So, um, that, you know, there was a lot of respect that both women had for each other. Yeah. So that was really great. I felt that was really good. Yeah. And your first phone call, are we able to talk about that? Because it was just interesting to me. Yeah, because I was really sick. <laughs> well, you were sick and just the day that it was and how yeah, it transpired. So it was, yeah, so that was, um, so that was the 8th of March. I just, I, you know, I didn't jump on the phone to Anne or anything. You know, mum found out she had other children and nobody in her family knew. Mm. Like Nana never knew that Anne had had a baby. So it was all, you know, she kept a very important um story hidden for many many years so Mm. we had to tread carefully and which I was very happy to do so mum and Anne had sort of continued some conversations and arranged on so come May uh, was Mother's Day and I was going my partner and I were going to visit my mum and dad for Mother's Day and I woke up really sick with some gastro bug and rang mum and said, look, I can't come. And she's like, oh, no, um, I had a surprise for you. I was like, oh, what surprise? So, you know, she was going, Anne was going to um, call call on Mother's Day when I was at mum's. So I remember riding like around with, you know, just between you know being sick and whatnot going oh no not today and I can't speak to her today and it's like oh no but I this is it so anyway the phone call happened between me and Anne and it was a yeah to hear so I'd heard her words Mm. through the letter but um to hear her voice was really um uh, you know, it was a really important moment and it was something familiar about the sound of her voice and I was just trying to reconcile what, you know, why was that familiar and so listening to the sound of her voice but also listening to what she was saying, um, there was a lot going on. So mm. I think, yeah, people who've been through that themselves would probably identify with just that sensory overload. And then... She'd sent me some photos of, of her and her siblings and um, and just sort of pieces of paper with people's names on them and birth dates. And so it wasn't, she didn't send me a letter. Um, she asked me to send 
some photos, which I did, and I'd written a poem of sorts um, on the day that I first heard her letter read to me. So I sent her that and I sent her some photos of myself and, yeah, they are the photos that she used to send around to her siblings and to show her children and pretty much let the photo speak for itself and that's yeah. when family members said, well, who is this? And then yeah. that's when she told everybody that she'd had a baby and, yeah. and had adopted her out and that was me. Yeah, secret over. Secret over. But, you know, even that Mother's Day phone call, she was in her hallway, you know, her, none of her family knew at that point that she mm. that I was I existed so yeah I sort of let her guide a lot of that process you know I wasn't just going to ring the family or land on their Mm. doorstep or anything like that but once she told her siblings so I had aunties ringing me from all over the place and um, the first person that I'd met got to meet in my family was my auntie who lived in Melbourne so well that was my next question is you've had um, that first contact so how did the relationship unfold then between you and Anne and your biological family over the next few years? Yeah, so, I mean, the first I mean, the uh, first meetings of everybody was pretty all incredibly positive and, you know, the first time I went, you know, went to my auntie's house and, you know, she knew I was coming and her front gate was open, the front door was open, everything was just open, like, you know, so I just walked in and she came running up the hall and, yeah, I guess that first hug was incredible, that first hug of my people, you know. Mm-hmm. But for those reasons, you know, and then I also met my nana that day. So nana had flown down from the Hunter Valley because she knew that um, I was going over that day. So that was a really positive sign as well. And um, and then meeting other people, uh, yeah, sister and other aunties and everybody, you know, I was I was shiny and new, you know, and, and plus nobody knew that Anne had been through this. So she sort of set up all of, like, for me to meet everybody before I met her, which was an interesting way to do it. Um, but I didn't have a map or roadmap for this, so I just went with with the flow because Anne was in Tasmania wasn't she yeah so she's in Tasmania yeah I was in Melbourne yeah one of her sisters was in Melbourne mm. um the other siblings there was one in Adelaide and um a couple in New South Wales sort of north of Newcastle so yeah just meeting them there were just so many so many questions but excitement and love and um, yeah, it was just super, super positive. So I just loved it. And well, I guess, you know, meeting my auntie in Melbourne, you know, I had never looked like anyone my whole life. So, you know, it was all of the things. It was super sensory, you know, mm-hmm. the, the feel, the look, the sounds, um, everything just really spoke to every part of me. And mm-hmm. that was all amazing. I just learned so much and got to know yeah, you know, part of a big part of my story. So then when I did meet Anne, it ended up being uh, the night before my wedding. Oh, wow. 
you have a habit of having these (laughs) big momentous occasions and (laughs) clashing with not clashing combining let's say (laughs) I know it was you know as if you know night before weddings isn't big enough (laughs) but um that's just how it worked out like I'd spoken to her on the phone several times by then and we exchanged you know um messages by mail and, and things so it did take a while like I'd met her I'd met all of her siblings I'd met her best friend at the time when she was pregnant with me I'd met her in Sydney um and you know I was a, not a bit older than Anne would have been when she had me but you know her f- best friend at the time was you know like you're so much like and Karen, your mannerisms, like everything, like I'm like this was just blowing my mind. So yeah, it just turned out that she couldn't come to Melbourne any sooner. Mm. And so yeah, the night before my wedding, you know, all the aunties and Nana came to the wedding, and the night before I went to meet Anne at the airport. And so a couple of her siblings came and to watch, <laughs> to be there. Um, yeah, and so we we met at, at the airport, and so just I think those well, they were the days at the at the domestic airport where the the doors opened and closed, like while people were coming through the door. So there was just this big emotional, like you know, the doors opening. Oh no, that's not her. Here's another one. So it was I don't know. It just <laughs> felt like it went for three hours, but anyway, I'm sure it didn't. And anyway, there she was, and she gave me. Yeah, she just came out. She had amazing long hair, graying hair, dark hair, but graying hair. And that was really cool to me. And she had red lipstick on and I love red lipstick, like all of these things yeah. that we had. And, yeah, the the hug, that first hug, it was so, so much energy behind it. It was, like, hard. It wasn't mm. a soft, melting hug. It was a hard hug and yeah that was really big and then you know we went back to the car and my auntie was driving and all the others went off in their car and um yeah and then the car wouldn't start so we had to wait for the RACV to come and (laughs) and so we just had this awkward time just as like in the car park at Melbourne airport (laughs) (laughs) an hour and a half it's like oh gosh I'm getting married tomorrow um yeah so it was sort of kind of a little bit awkward because we all had so much on our minds and uh, anyway so that was the first meeting but yeah the the my wedding day was brilliant and for for many reasons most importantly my husband but um apart from that yeah it was my family getting together with my husband's family who they never hadn't met before and also um yeah my biological my maternal family were all there so it was yeah it was a really big beautiful moment where I could all my people were in the Mm. same place for the first time ever so inevitably there comes a conversation um with your mother that who is my father mm. or, or a disclosure how did that how did that go yeah so a couple of months down the track 
we went away. My auntie arranged a time where we went, you know, spent a night um, at a house down on the, yeah, down in Rye in Victoria. And um, I had a folder of like bits of paper that I'd collected on as part of my search to find Anne and some things and paperwork that my mum had, you know, in the process of, you know, the adoption and, and some non-identifying information in social workers' records that my mum had been given. And I had collected them all in a pretty crappy, tatty folder, to be honest. I'm much better at filing things these days. Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so I, I spent the night with Anne and, you know, just showed her my folder and, and she read the social workers' records and and she said you know she was flipping through going oh not that's not true and that's not true and but I didn't really know which bits she was talking about I can't believe I didn't have a notepad and pen with me at the time but I was just I just it was just a conversation and I didn't think to take notes um, which I would highly recommend um, (laughs) for anyone else doing that and yeah so And then she said, well, have you got any questions? And I said, well, yes, I'd like to know who who is my father. And she stared at me, a really long, deep stare, and just said um, uh, she gave me a name, but then she said, don't look for him. Do not look for him. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yes, it was complicated. He had a girlfriend at the time. They went on to get married and they had a son. And she told me the name of the son. And that's all I had. And then Mm -hmm. so I just went, oh, okay, well, I mean, I just found you. You know, I'm, I'm filled to the brim as it is. It's fine. You know, that's all good. And, you know, I, I told myself, Okay, she doesn't want you to find him, but you know you're you know just be happy with what you've got. Mm. <laughs> so, and I was for many many years. I was very happy just you know building that relationship with Anne and my family, and it was really positive. But yeah, I mean, I knew that I could never speak to her about my father again. The way she spoke to me, the look she gave me, it was out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, you know, eventually as I got, as I became pregnant actually, when I got pregnant with my eldest, um, that's when, I don't know, just the feelings of who is my father, they just kept coming up. I couldn't suppress them anymore. It just was like it was an overwhelming urge. So, yeah, I started making some inquiries and, um, I wrote to her best friend who, at the time of my birth, thinking that she would know. In fact, she had told me she knew who my father was, but it wasn't her place to say, and that was Anne's place to say. So I went to her and wrote a letter, and, and they never received a response, so it just went nowhere. And then some further time passed, and I just couldn't stop I couldn't hold that back I felt I needed to know my truth and then that's when I started just you know investigating myself and researching so yeah so did you tell Anne at the time that you were starting to investigate no 
No. I just knew that that was a no-go zone, but I just mm. thought I, I felt like I could manage that on my own and just, you know, hopefully find him and just deal with that and then keep her separate from that mm. for whatever reason, um, you know. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't really know the full, you know, obviously I didn't know all the circumstances apart from that he was married. So mm. if she knew that, that she, you know, she may have known all the other people. So I was just trying to keep, you know, protect her mm. while following my own yeah. yearning and deep desire to know. Yeah. And that desire can become so strong and as it did for you. How did that play out your search for your father? And well, I'll, I'll ask that just for a little bit because we're not going to give away the ending of the book. No, no, so whatever really you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Sure. So, look, I, I went um, I went to the electoral roll. I, um, I searched there. Nothing was really coming up for the name that I had remembered. And then I, I yeah, so my Actually, I found out when I, mum told me when I was about eight years old that my father was Italian because that was what was referred to in the social workers' records. And I was appalled at the idea that, oh, I mean, I can't even believe I'm saying this now, but as a young girl who didn't know anybody from any other country from apart from white Australia, at the time I was like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, I only knew Maria and Tony from the fish and ship shop, you know, that's <laughs> that's my only reference points I was really kind of upset <laughs> to think that my father's Italian yet yeah, so I was looking for the name that um Anne had given me and it wasn't making sense so close to my home in Melbourne there's a lovely Italian deli that I would go to frequently and um the lovely owners Rocco and Adriana would often ask you know all about me and who's my family and where are you really from and all of this. So I had a quiet moment with them in their shop one day and just told them what I was doing and gave them the name that I was looking for and Rocco's like, no, no, that's there's something wrong with that name. And he encouraged me to, you know, mix the name around a bit or try different spelling. And, and thanks to him, I went back to the electoral roll office um, in Melbourne's West and, and, yeah, found found the name, you know. So I wow. really thank um, Rocco and Adriana for their, for their counsel in the deli. Um, and, yeah, I found him and then I wrote him a letter and, well, yes, you know, his son rang and, you know, I just dropped this big bomb on their family going, you know, which imploded into what the hell, what's, what, what do you mean? But, yes, I, I met his son over the phone. He, he called me and, um, yeah, and then we, we met eventually, like several months later. They were a beautiful, beautiful family. Yeah. And so then I needed to tell Anne what had happened. Um, because there was an unexpected turn of events and mm. I needed to let her know. That you'd done which, a search. Yeah, yep. that I'd searched. Mm. How did that go? Well, she was shocked. Um, and I I guess, you know, while I balanced my my the, the feelings of, you know, from my mum, looking out for my mum's feelings about finding Anne, about Anne and mum and about, you know, Anne and who my father is, I think, Adoptees do a lot of um, juggling and, mm -hmm. and juggling. And I think that's um, 
it's a bit of a survival skill really just to manage everybody's feelings and not being you know not doing the wrong thing by so many people that's 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 big work and it's exhausting so mm. I, I tried my hardest every, at every encounter to manage everybody's feelings so I did go to Anne and let her know or I wrote to her um keeping you know without judgment, with, with, you know, acknowledging her shock and all of these things. But um, now she responded for a little bit. There was a bit of to and fro between us and then, yeah, and then she just shut me out. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So, yeah, it is heartbreaking. I think a lot of adoptees also have those, um, you know, share that experience too of, being ghosted at some point um, mm-hmm. for reasons that we never really fully understand that for whatever reason people can't um, really speak as to what is really going on for, yeah. for, for them. And sometimes we are the ghosters. And sometimes we need to be the ghosters yeah. because we're, you know, protecting our heart. Yeah, yeah. So um, your adopted mother was so involved in your initial search and and reunion, and she was positive and supportive of the relationship with Anne. Um, But you write that the relationship between them became strained over the years. Why do you think that is and how did it impact on you and your relationships with both of those women? Yeah, well, my mum was really keen to to meet Anne and, you know, they'd all, she'd always ask about her and, and, you know, and I'd be the sort of feeder of information between the two of them. If I'd spoke to Anne on the phone, she'd ask how my parents were and vice versa. So, you know, I managed that sort of highway of information between the three of us pretty well. And whenever Anne and me and mum and dad were in the same city, you know, if off in Melbourne that, um, you know, I'd arrange to have, you know, a lunch or a catch-up of some sort. So, and they usually went quite well and, you know, they would find things that they had in common and that was really great. I loved that, but they were very different people. So mum mm. and dad, you know, being, becoming parents in the 1950s to my older brothers, um, they had a very 1950s sort of, style of upbringing whereas um, upbringing their children but mm. Anne was a lot more contemporary so which I loved and Anne had you know her hair was going gray by this stage and she had amazing hair and she still wore a red lipstick and I loved that about her um, so I think but mum was all very you know tidy hair keeping it tidy you know keeping ourselves contained physically and emotionally um, so I think when Anne and I, I guess as I, we probably got more comfortable with each other, I think it hurt mum to see um, me and Anne together in the same room and because we looked a lot alike. And I had my hair was, you know, long and wild and starting to go a bit wavy and, and not so tidy and Anne's was similar and I that was, I remember the last 
um, catch up that they had in my at my place in Melbourne that that really bothered mum that my hair was you know she wanted me to pull my hair back and keep it nice and mm. and you know it was because I looked like Anne and she did, yeah. it just didn't sit with her she just she wanted I think she still wanted to have ownership of me and who I was and how I behaved and how I looked and you know so I think that was about ownership. I think that that's why that became really hard. So that was the last time we were all together um, that time with the hair. All the comments were made by mum about my hair. Yeah. But after that, you know, I still, you know, oh, you know, Anne said this or she, you know, she just sent this to us or she's going here or whatever in her life that I would share with mum and then mum got to the point where she just said I'm just don't want to hear any more about Anne Mm. so she probably reached her her peak of of having Anne in her life you know she was really wanting more just from me about me and her relationship with me not me and my birth mother yeah so yeah she I guess she you know Good on her, I guess, for for saying that's how she felt. Yeah. And that's so then, yeah, so then I just stopped talking about Anne and which then became quite easy because then I didn't hear from Anne again. But at the same time, I also didn't didn't tell my mum about my search for my biological father either Mm -hmm. because I just felt like she had reached that peak with Anne that she didn't want to, didn't she need wasn't to know anymore. And she was getting older yeah. and different stage of her life as well. Yeah. Look, I don't want to give, as I've said before, too much away about the end of the book. And I'm saying that because the final third is going to have readers glue to it. Um, and it's got some highs and lows and um, and I know there's even some things that have happened post the end of the book that I do hope you write about again because I know people are going to be interested. Um, But can I ask you, I guess, what have you taken away from your searches, the roadblocks, the highs and lows? Okay, so, so much, right? Um, I guess I've, it takes resilience and people have often thought, you know, they say that about me, you're so resilient, Karen. I think we also adoptees learn to be resilient Mm-hmm. But I persevered and um, there were times when I needed courage and I just didn't know, like, how do you get courage? I'm still struggling with that, even though I've, you know, I've dipped my toe in the curry, the courage bath um, <laughs> over the years. But I feel, yeah, when you need it, it's very hard to find it. Mm. um so anyway look I have shown courage and bravery at times but also I've needed time to digest each piece of the puzzle as it reveals itself I think you know just having time but sometimes we're not in charge you know we can't control the way things unfold so but it really helped me to have a strong base of supporters so the people who stood by and behind me they gave me the strength and they allowed me to uh, to wobble and to crumble at times um 
I had to prepare myself sometimes that I had to prepare myself for the worst case scenario which was you know took me to some pretty dark places and um, I had counseling along the way at different times um, and I'm really glad that I prepared to have some counseling just at the time I released my book into the world earlier this year um, yeah, and that, yeah, the most wonderful outcome came from that and that will probably be my next book. Well, it will be my next book, so I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But I'll have to have you back then. Yes. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. And, look, you know, I guess what kept me, and I guess my supporters felt, believe this too, that adoptees have a right to know our biological truth. So, yeah, I believe that and mm -hmm. I think that's, what kept me um, solid is just yeah. knowing, you know, I don't mean to hurt anyone. You know, I don't set out to hurt anyone. But, yeah, this has happened to us, this happened to me and happened to many of your listeners, I'm sure. Yeah. So we're okay. It's good to hear. So, Karen, where can people buy Lifting the Lead? Yes, so you can buy it at all the online places like Amazon and Book Depository, Booktopia, some of the um, good bookshops around, um, like I think Avid Reader in Brisbane, mm -hmm. they can order it in for you or, um, or any bookshop around the country can order it in. And or you can go to my website, which is uh, kareningram.com.au. Excellent. And we'll be putting links up to buy um, Karen's book and to her website as well. So you can take a look on our episode notes page on the Jigsaw Queensland website. But Karen, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your incredible story today. As I said, I loved your book and I've enjoyed even more, I think, digging even deeper into your story today. And, and I know others that um, are going to learn a great deal from it and, and enjoy your book as well. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jo. It's been great to speak with you and also to the listeners out there. I hope, you know, I just wish everybody, you know, strength and solidarity on whatever your adoption journey is. Yeah. Yes. So meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete your um, the prospective guest form that you're going to find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.